Welcome to Where I Come From, a new podcast dedicated to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Kenny Wilhite, former All-Big 8 cornerback at Nebraska and current director of high school relations for the Huskers. He talked about growing up in a St. Louis house with 26 people, escaping a neighborhood of fistfights and gunshots, choosing Tom Osborne over John Gruden, what he learned about recruiting from Nellie, the car accident that killed an 11-year-old stranger, and losing his inspiration. He would take me outside in in the dark, throw the football up, and I had to catch it. I'm taking some off the face. Kenny Walker, he hit me so hard. I know I got the black shirt defense pissed off. I told everybody at the funeral, I wanted to break the cycle. I'm no better than anybody in this church, but I wanted something better. I have this rose in my car. I kiss it every time. Turn the music down, complete silence. The whole time I'm driving past that exit. This is where I come from. Kenny Wilhite, thanks for being on the podcast. It's been 30 years since you, uh, not quite 30 years. Not quite 30. 25 years since you wore this uniform. Yes. Uh, what's it like working for this working for this operation now? I was, my high school coach went into uh, Missouri Hall of Fame uh, last week, and uh, I called him. I was driving back from St. Louis uh, yesterday, and I called him. And uh, we were just chatting it up and he goes how's everything I said coach I'm blessed I said I, I couldn't be more happy because as a athlete here you always with myself I always dreamed of coming back so when I got the phone call to come back in any capacity and you know, I jumped at the opportunity and it's still it's still unreal sometimes I, I sit and think about it and when I walk into this place every every day for work I'm like this is this is really this is real, so it, it's it's there's nothing nothing like it. Now d- describe the day that you found out you were going to be working here. Well, you know, thanks to Jeff Jamrock, you know, he, he and I are good friends. He he was the one that gave me the call, and uh, you know, I you you put down the phone and I just say yes, yes, I, I'm going back to Nebraska because this place gave me an opportunity. Uh, to get an education and play football. So so he calls you because mm-hmm. he knew that you were out there or you'd been well, in touch well, with him? He, he got in touch with me and said they was trying to create a position uh, would I be interested because I was coaching. I was actually on the field coaching. Yeah. And I said, of course I would. And uh, he said, well, I'll give you a call. And two months later he calls and tells me, you know, we got to figure it out. What, what do you want to do? And I told him. I came up, visited with him and, you know, previous staff and uh, – Kind of felt like this is where I wanted to be. Um, I knew it was an off-the-field role, but I kind of knew this is where I wanted to be. And so, when they offered me the position, I was, I was excited. I had an eerie smile on my face. Now, a year later, there's a coaching transition. Exactly. Are you sweating bullets, thinking you're going to have to move on? I was, I was, but you know, I, my grandma would always say, you know, the man upstairs will take care of you. And I was fortunate enough that Coach Riley kept me on, and uh, so you were just about the only one. Yes, yes. So very blessed. Did you tell him, uh, "Hey, you need somebody who's worn this uniform uh, in this office"? Or no, I, I didn't. You know, I 
you know, I, I visited with him the, the, the day he came, and he said, make sure I, I got with uh, DVD. Um, so I visited with DVD for a couple minutes, and then... There's a Wikipedia article about DVD. <laughs> Time out. You might be wondering what just happened there. Kenny's iPhone heard him say DVD, and Siri popped in with a Wikipedia article about DVD. So Kenny grabbed the phone, put it behind him, and turned it to silent. One other editor's note before we get back to the interview. You're going to hear a lot of whooshing during this conversation. That's Kenny's windbreaker. Unfortunately, I didn't ask him to take it off before we started our conversation. Please bear with us. A little auxiliary noise is a small price to pay for Kenny's story. So I pretty much just, uh, you know, played about here for a couple of days and, you know, helped the guys with recruiting. You know, they had an official visit weekend. I helped them with that weekend. And then um, probably another week went past. And then Coach Riley called me and said, uh, hey, we'd like to keep you on board and, and uh, offer your position. So, I mean, that was another happy day for me. You, uh... You grew up in St. Louis. Yes, sir. Uh, and you still go back quite a bit, right? I was there this weekend. What were you doing? Um, my niece graduated college, so I went to her graduation at Missouri State in Springfield. Okay. Then drove to St. Louis. I have a daughter and a grandson there, and my mom and my, my whole family still lives there. So Really? I go back and just hang out with the guys and, you know, just see the family, and then I drive back. Uh, what part of St. Louis? The inner city. Okay. Probably five minutes from downtown. South, west, north, north, north city, yeah. north city. Yeah. Uh, you went to uh, you went to Oakville, right? Yes. We were talking about that this weekend, standing out right in front of the house I grew up in. Um, there was a high school one block up the street, and when it came time for me to go to high school, my mom was like, "You're not going there." I don't know if you've seen the movie Lean on Me. Yeah. With you know, and that's how the high school was. She okay, was like, describe it though. I mean, even the middle school I went to, you know, we, we were talking about this. I mean, I'm in the sixth grade, and there's guys in the eighth grade driving to middle school. So you're not knowing this, but even guys are in the sixth and seventh grade because our middle school went sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So those guys that were driving, you find out they were, you know, they're, I'm, I'll be 47, not to tell my age, but I'll be 47. Those guys are 51, 52 now. So they were older than they should have been in, in the eighth grade. Okay. So you went to school with those guys. I'm like, gee, man. But, I mean, there was times where you, you had to fight. You know, girls girls would fight you. Um, I remember one time I had to jump out the window of our first floor classroom to get away from two girls. You know, they were chasing me. They was trying to do things that I didn't want them to do. And so I jumped out the window and got locked out of the school. Really? And I got suspended. I got suspended, so I mean, it was a it was a school, it was a rough school, middle school, and then so when it came down to coming to high school, mom said, "You're not going to Beaumont." So we applied for the DC. so Beaumont was the school right was next the school door. right right down the street, one block away, and so we applied for the desegregation program um, that they had just started, and I got accepted to Oakville, and went out there from freshman to senior year. What was your the, the roots of your family were, were all in the inner city of St. Louis? Or did my grandmother, we lived with my mom's parents. They okay. had 11 kids. So it was 26 of us in one house. No. Yes. Um, on the basement level, there was five boys, my uncles. And then on the first level, it was a living room, my grandma, my grandparents' room, my, me and my brother's room. We all slept in a twin bed. 
And then my uncle had a twin bed across the room from us. Then above, upstairs were all the girls. My mom and her sisters lived with their kids. So it was 26 of us in one house, two bathrooms. Um, <laughs> so we, we were talking about this. Um, I slept in the bed with them until I was 13. Finally, I said, you know what? I'm sleeping on the floor. There was no carpet. It was hardwood floor. So how many, how many of you in a twin bed? There was me and my three little brothers. For you in a twin bed? Yeah. So age of 13, I said, I'm sleeping on the floor. So I slept on the hardwood floor. We got carpet, I think, my sophomore year in high school. But we had, we had roaches. We had mice. We had a cat that would just, you know, we had a cat only for the mice. But, yeah, it was, I didn't, I just was not sleeping in that bed with them anymore. So 26 of us in that house, and, and there was some fun times now. Fun times, yeah. uh, but also I imagine a lot of hard times, right? There was there was a lot of hard times. We were talking about the stores we had to go to to get food, and so there was one store you go get the lunch meat. So she'd give my grandmother would give somebody five dollars, go get five dollars worth of bologna. She'd give me ten dollars, you go get ten dollars worth of well five dollars worth of bread and two five pound bag of potatoes. So bread was ten cents a loaf. So we had this big deep freeze in the back of the house, so we put all the bread and. You know, store all the bread unless we needed it. That's when we brought it out the deep freezer. But that was a. Uh, then my mom and my aunt would go to this place called Safeway to get all the rest of the meat, bologna. I mean, hot dogs, uh, a hamburger, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was it was some fun times. Now, what did your uh, what did your mom do? My mom had me when she was sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah. So I can remember her taking me to White Castles with her to work because she was working at White Castles so she could finish up school. Really? Yeah. So she she didn't want to leave me with my, with my grandmother and my granddad so she would take me to work with her sometimes and then uh, what would she, you What would you do at White Castle while she was working? I sat and ate the donuts. <laughs> they had some really good donuts there. So, But I was the oldest, oldest of four and so she would take me sometimes to work with her and, and leave my, my one brother that she would leave them at, with my grandmother but I didn't want to stay there. I wanted to go with her so did you ever know your dad? Well, to make a long story short, um, there's four of us. The two youngest brothers, their dad adopted me and my brother. That's right up under me. Okay. So we didn't know this at the time. I mean, I'm sharing this. This I'm just finding this out. But our real dad was not in the picture. And then um, we found out that we that we have different dads. So, so wait, when did you find that out? Um, probably 05. Oh, really? Yeah. My brother and I found out in 05. So, from that time to So, now, you found out that, that, that the man you thought was your dad, dad was, was not me. your actual dad? Yes. yes. What was that like? It, it was hard. Um, but I, I mean, again, you, as, a, as a kid struggling growing up, you see a lot of things and it didn't surprise us, but it was it was a shock to us. But we we always we asked our mom why didn't she tell us? She said he was a bad person. He was in the bad things, and, um, and my brother and I always said that. Well, when we became of age, you should have gave us the opportunity to decide if we wanted him to be in our life or not. So, but he's been in and out of prison. He's been he's in prison now. So, but my brother has gotten a hold of of hold of his sister and brother, and they've contacted me. We spoke, and then. You know, I don't hope no grudges against him. It's just, you know, it my mom's decision to keep him away from us. How did all that influence your childhood? I mean, you got, you know, you got 26 people in one house. Uh, you know, obviously, 
the, the neighborhood isn't so isn't so no. good and safe. Well, I knew growing up, my uncles drank sun up to sundown. I knew that's something I didn't want to do. I didn't want to drink. Uh, I knew I wanted something better for, for one for my grandmother, and my granddad, for them to to struggle with their eleven kids and their grandkids in one house, and you know the, they were my inspiration. They were my motivation. They were my everything. Um, so that was a motivation to me to get out, make something better for myself and for them. Uh, you know, we talk about, we joke about it all the time. We had a menu. Beans and cornbread on Monday, beans and cornbread on Tuesday, maybe neck bones and something on and potatoes on Wednesday, tuna fish, bologna and cheese sandwich and potato chips on Thursday. On Friday, you got a dollar. You went to the local Chinese Chinese place and got a box of rice. Saturday, you got hot dogs and pork and beans. Sunday, you got a really good meal. And you you remember that down to the detail. We, that's what it was. But I didn't eat beans. So I would peel potatoes, cut them up to french fries, and make french fries, and, and eat french fry sandwiches. Uh, or government cheese. I'd make grilled cheese. And I'd put the government cheese on top of the french fries and make cheese fries. So you had to, cre- you had to be creative. And then when Roman noodles came out, those were Robin Doodle. Yeah, those were it. I won't touch that nowadays. I won't touch it. <laughs> Will not touch them. So, did you? Was was athletics kind of the only way out of the neighborhood? It was. It was. I started playing football at the age of five. Five. On concrete, in our basement. My uncle's now. He's ten years older than me. My mom's brother. And then I have an uncle who's seven years older than me. So my uncle, who was ten years older than me, would take me his brother and my cousin who was two years older than me in the basement and hand me the ball tell them to tackle me now if they hit me too hard he would you know let them have it but I would elude them and he said from that day on he goes you're gonna be the one you're gonna be a special one really that's what he said so six years old I started playing little league uh, full contact football so I was six, but I played with a seven-year-old, so I was able to play. And then uh, he would take me outside in the in the dark, throw the football up, and I had to catch it. I had to catch it in the dark. You know, the football has the two white stripes, so by the time the ball comes down, I'm taking some off the face. That's how I learned how to catch a football. So he would you, throw it up in the dark and tell me to find it. So you learned the game essentially from your My uncle. From your uncle. Yes. He was a really, really good athlete. Fortunately, he didn't. He dropped out of school, um, but he was a quarterback. He was a good baseball player. He was a good basketball player. So he took it upon himself to instill that in all the boys in the family. I mean, there was no crying aloud. You know, there was no backing down from a fight. If anybody challenged us, you had to go handle your business, whether it was an athletic event, fighting, whatever. There was no backing down. He would take us to this local park that's probably – Two miles away from where we live, drop us off and tell us we had a certain time to make it back home, running. And if we didn't make it, he'd take us back and do it again. Really? Yeah. At the same park, that was a probably a thirty-yard hill. We would have to run hills and then run home, run across the highway, dodge cars. Oh, it was it was it was it was crazy. Pushed. We could not sit in the house and watch TV. You had to be outside doing something active. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Hearing from a lot of guys who, uh, especially you know, kids who grew up in the city, uh, a lot of times you know it's it's a really 
stubborn, hard-headed, uh, tough-minded mentor mm-hmm. that, that sort of pushes them. Yep. Pushes them to a level to get out. Yes. That was your experience. That was my experience. I mean, I had a cousin that was two years older than me. He was taller, but I always strive to be better than him. I wanted to be better than him in everything. I wanted to be better than my uncle in everything. You know, as I was the shortest, so I had to work extra hard. Um, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I was faster. I was more explosive, and I was a lot quicker than my cousin. So I could beat him in things, but with his height, he would try to bully me a little bit. So, and then there was a lot of fights on the basketball court, on the football field. So, but yeah, that was it. Was it was some fun? It was some tough times. Um, were you were you doing much organized sports as a kid, or was it pretty much just neighborhood out in the backyard and the street and stuff like that? The, the crazy thing is. Our local boys club was right behind our house. Oh, really? It was called Herbert Hoover Boys Club. What was your address? 3638 Heber. So it was Heber Street, Sullivan, and the boys club was right on Sullivan. It used to be old Bush Stadium, Sportsman's Park. They made that a boys club. So we had to go there all day, every day. That's how I learned how to swim. I learned how to play ping pong. I learned how to play pool at our local boys club. Well, you could not sit in the house. You had to be there or you had to be doing something active. He would have us pushing tires. We'd have tire races around the block. <laughs> uh, grocery cart races around Neighborhood the block. Neighborhood Olympics. Oh, that's what it was. That's what it was. So so the old sportsman's park. park Herbert Hoover Boys Club was our boys club. Huh. We learned how to play football and basketball there and baseball. Uh, were you into the professional and college sports scene, or did you not really consume that stuff? You kind of have to be inside to consume that stuff, don't you? I knew nothing about it. Yeah. I mean, until I got to high school. Um, well, I knew a sport, uh, professional sports. I didn't know college until I got to high school. I was a big, sorry, I was a big Oklahoma fan <laughs> because of Jamel Holloway and Charles Thompson. I was a quarterback in high school when we ran the options. So, yeah. Uh, I was a huge Oklahoma fan, so that Nebraska-Oklahoma game was, and then one of my best friends was a Nebraska fan. So it was it was it was nuts. Some knockdown, drag out battles between he and I about Nebraska and Oklahoma. So, but not until I got to high school that I was somewhat familiar with college. So you were an option quarterback, option at, quarterback at Oakville. At Oakville, yep. Um, my freshman year, I didn't even go out for football. I was a shy kid. We didn't really say much. Um, my gym. Gym teacher saw saw us playing. We had football, and he saw me playing. He goes, "Hey, come here, son." He goes, um, "Why are you not playing football?" I said, "I didn't know if I could." See, as an African American going to an all white high school. Oh, it was an all white high. school. It was an all white high school. Okay. So it was a desegregation program. Yeah. So they was So I didn't know if I could. You know, because growing up in inner city, you're not really around any white people. Yeah, this is, this is 1984. Yeah. So he said. Let's go inside. So we went inside and we called my mom. Said, can we keep him after school? We're going to get him a physical and get him out for football. And my mom said, yeah, I thought he was out for football. See, she didn't even know. She thought I was playing. So uh, got the physical. Started freshman quarterback that, that same week. Um, <laughs> one of the best freshman football teams Oakville ever had uh, that year. So 
But um, they knew what they were doing. They, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. But again, as an African American, they're not, you know. So comes down to report for the next year, my sophomore year. I go to sophomore. I report to sophomore practice. Well, Mr. Jennings, who was an assistant coach, he said, "Hey, you coming with me?" I go, "Where am I going?" He goes, "You're going to varsity practice." I'm like varsity practice? He goes, "Yeah." So tried out for varsity. Won the starting job. Uh, there was a lot of flack about it. As in, I bet. yeah. So sophomore, sophomore, black kid, black kid, being the starting quarterback in an all-white high school was, you know, was was pretty difficult. You being called the N-word, um, you know. A lot of people don't know this, but to go to Oakville, I had to be up by four thirty-five o'clock in the morning. I was just going to ask you what your what your journey to school was like every day. Four thirty-five o'clock in the morning, get on the bus. They would go from different uh, places to pick other kids up. And by the time we get to school, school started at seven ten. And to stay after school, we took cabs home for activities. So if I stayed after school for practice, I didn't get home till seven eight o'clock at night. So you took a cab home. Yeah, because they didn't have bus. They didn't have a bus system yet. Right. So we would take cabs. Well, again, you out there in this dark, and then you notice things that you don't see in the city, like the N word written on a water tower. N word go home. Really? Yeah. They would drive by the school. We sit not wait on our cabs. They would drive by the school yelling things at us, telling us to go back to where we where we came from. You and how many kids? It was probably four of us on the on the football team. And they would yell things like that, go home, and this and that, this and that. But people don't realize St. Louis is the South. It was one of the most racist cities in America back then. And so but nineteen eighty four you would think the people would gradually, you know, get away from that, but no, it was so it, it was a really, really tough time. But my grandmother was from Yazoo, Mississippi. So I would always ask her grandmother, how did you guys do, deal with it in Mississippi? She said, well, you got ignorant African-Americans, you got ignorant white people. You just, you see people for who they are. You don't see them for color. You get to know them, you know them as a person, and then you, then you go from there. So that's how I always viewed it. Even though I was being called that, I really didn't take offense to it. I took offense to it, but I learned to to, to, to look away. You know, my, my grandmother always said this, treat them with kindness. Kindness, if you don't say anything back, that hurts them worse. So I let them say what they had to say, and I wouldn't say anything. So so I was battling for the starting job with the, so the white kid that didn't win the job, he got pissed, and he started saying things about me that, you know, it didn't bother me. So all I wanted to do was play football. That's all I wanted to do was play football. Because I, I, I love the game, I enjoy the game, I had fun playing the game. That's all I want to do. So they took a lot of flack for me being the starting quarterback, and then we won a couple games, and then the play that everybody in the state of Missouri, the city of St. Louis, remembers my sophomore year. We're playing down at Bush Stadium. We always played at Bush Stadium one game a year, the old Bush Stadium. Well, my cousin's high school. He went to Melville. That was a all-way high school. Also, he was part of the desegregation program. They played before us, and they won. And he had three touchdowns, 175 yards receiving because he was a receiver. So I, I said, I got to outdo him in our game. So we're playing. We're losing. The last play of the game, uh, coach tells me to throw a Hail Mary. We're probably on our own 48-yard line. I said, okay. I drive back, and instead of throwing it, I take off running. I made all... 11 other guys miss. 
I got hit the first time for, when I first took off. I got hit, spun around. Then I made some moves and made all eleven guys miss. And they said when I took off running, the head coach slammed his head on the ground because he was <laughs> pissed. Well, to make a long story short, I scored with four seconds left to win the game because we was down. We were down three or four, and so everybody remembers that play. So, but that was the turning point from where I was being accepted more as a person. When you were struggling with with race, uh, you know you're you're getting up at four thirty every day. You're going out to the school. You're sitting after school. You know, getting called racial epithets. At some point, didn't you just say, "Man, why can't I just go back to Beaumont? Why can't I just go back to you know a neighbor a neighborhood school? Like this isn't worth it." I didn't. Because I took my mom's word for it that I was going to get a better education, better opportunity to make it out. That's the way I viewed it. I didn't care. I, I, I turned my blinders on. Now, it got up. Now, I'm not going to say it didn't bother me because it did. You know, I had a really, really short fuse. I mean, temper was, you know, because growing up where I grew up, you had to fight. So, But I was able to control it and take it all. I took it out on people on the football field. That's where I channeled my anger was on the football field when those things happen. You know what I mean? If I was being called a certain name, if I was being said this, anything, every time I would doubt it, I went to the football field or I went to the basketball court. That's why I took out my frustration. Who was the first white person you you got close to? That I really, really let close to me? It was two people. Pete Jennings, who was the assistant coach on the football team, and then John Poldan, who was the basketball coach. Those two right now are two of my best friends. So this is all the way, you didn't really have no. someone close to you until high school? Until high school, no. I mean, even growing up, the only people I was close to was my family. I mean, you had friends, you had you had boys you hung out with, but as far as outside, because I was very, very shy, and I was very, very, my brothers were more outgoing than I was. You know, I was just to myself. I just wanted to play sports and didn't want to talk to people. So, but when those two took me aside and took me under their wings, that those are the first two I ever let inside. Yeah, my mom and grandmother didn't know things about me that that I would share with them. You know, because it was just very, very shy. Like what? I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't talk. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. My brothers would be talking and saying stuff like my brother now the one he's right up under me he does all the talking <laughs> I'll just sit back and listen I'll, I'll just say yes sir just just shake my head yes or no but now I'm older I'm more vocal but back then I wouldn't say two words so if if 30 years ago they would have known that you were the uh, director of high school relations they might have laughed at that title huh? yes they would have. <laughs> not not shy Kenny. That's what they would say. Not shy Kenny. So You didn't have the uh didn't have the grades to get into to a D one school out of high school, right? Nope. I um I let all that go hype go to my head and uh let my grades slip, so I missed my junior year of football. Oh really? High school. I didn't play. I went to summer school, pulled my grades up and was able to play basketball second semester of my junior year. Uh, we actually got two games away from state championship game. And then my senior year, I couldn't recover. 
academics I couldn't recover. You're going from an inner-city middle school to a, a more structured academic school, the grading scale was different. I was a C and B student. I mean, a B and, and C student at the school I went to in, the, in middle school, but the grading scale was higher where I went to high school. So my Bs became Cs, those Cs became Bs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I had to figure it out. Hold on, this is different. The, 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 the academic demands here are different than they were when I went to middle school. So I figured it out late, but it was too late. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go to JC. I went to a junior college. Dodge City. Dodge City. And that was another person, the head coach there. He, he's at our high school looking at our offensive tackle and notices me. So I get called to the, to the library. They said there's a coach for Dodge City. Wants to see. I was like, Dodge City, where the heck is Dodge City? Right. So the teacher whose class I was in pulled it up on the map. I'm like, I'm not going to Dodge City. He goes, do you know what they're known for? I was like, no. He goes, that's wider boot hill and gun smoke. I was like, what is that? <laughs> he goes, it's a western. Don't worry about it. It's, it's a, you know, so I was like, whatever. So I go down there, and I walk in, and this guy's standing there with this suede jacket on with tassels hanging off, cowboy boots. Really? Yeah. I'm like, again, Caucasian gentleman, African-American. And I'm like, this guy? He, so we talk, and he goes, Hey, you're a really good football player. He said, what do you want to do? And I told him, I said, I want to play football, get an education. He goes, I see you struggled a little bit academically. And I was like, yeah, I kind of let, you know, football accolades go to my head. And, and then, you know, I've been doing well trying to recover. He goes, yes, you have. He goes, so what if I want to bring you out on a visit? I said, I got to go home and talk to my mom and dad about that. He goes, well, okay, that's fine. He goes, well, I'm going to tell you right now, if you, he said an explicit word, I'll come back here and I'll personally kick you. You know what? I've never had anybody talk to me like that. Wait, wait, wait a second. He said what? If you screw me over, okay, I'll come back here and personally kick your you-know-what. I'm like, this dude don't even know me. Right? So I went out there for a visit. You know, I got on one of those little small planes I've never flown before. And I'm flying. I'm like, oh, my God. You've never on. flown before? No. No. So <clears throat> I get there, and I liked it. And he, he was saying all the right things. You know, it was far from home. He was saying all the right things. And then... Um, we made the decision that that was probably the best thing for me. Because if I wouldn't have went to junior college, I'd either be in the military or doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. Because at that time, drugs had, drugs and gangs had just got to St. Louis really bad. So, um, so I went out there for two years and played. I was a first-team All-American quarterback and then transferred to Nebraska. What happened to, your, uh, what happened to the people you left behind? A lot of them were either dead, in jail, or or strung out on drugs. I go back home now, and guys that I went to middle school with that decided to go to Beaumont or the other surrounding inner city schools, they didn't make it. The um, the drugs, the gangs, a lot of them got into that. I mean, even my little brothers, they fell victim to that. They got into the to the drugs and the gangs and. Um, we weren't raised like that, but they they thought that was an easy way out. And, you know, fortunately they didn't make it. They didn't graduate high school. I'm the only one who graduated high school. Really? Yeah. 26 people in that house. In that house. I was the first male to get a college degree out of the whole family. Again, my grandmother had five boys. 
I had there's so many male cousins I have that came from that house. I'm the, I was the first one with a, with a college degree. I think there's two of my immediate cousins, male, and two females have college degrees. My immediate cousins that grew up in that house. When you when you are when you get out when you go on to do what you want to do and you leave that many people behind, that's that's not just a success story. There's you know there's some maybe some guilt that comes with that. Maybe some uh, that you know that, that's a that's a complicated experience for you, right? It is. It is because some frown on you, some are happy for you, some will talk behind your back. Again, our family was so close. Then when my grandmother passed away, we started growing further and further apart. It's a struggle at times. And my little, my youngest brother got killed last summer. Last summer. Last summer, he got killed. How old was he? Thirty-six. He got robbed and killed in St. Louis, right behind our old house. So, um, again, I wasn't. I don't. I didn't speak. I don't talk. But I spoke at his funeral. And I told everybody at the funeral, I wanted to break the cycle. I'm no better than anybody in this church, but I wanted something better. It was 26 of us in one house. I was determined to make my grandmother and my granddad proud. And I was determined to make everybody in this family proud. I'm not standing up here because I'm better than anybody in this family. I'm standing up here because I wanted to break the cycle. And I want us to continue to break the cycle. But until we stop disliking each other or trying to bring everybody down in the family, it's not going to work. I, that's why I went to my niece's graduation. She graduated college. I was proud of her. Any of my nieces or my nephews graduate from high school or college, I'm going to go because not a lot of us in that household got college, high school diplomas or college degrees. So I'm going to support them. As long as they do what they're supposed to do, I'm going to support them. But it's, it's a struggle. It's because everybody got their hand out. Can I borrow this? Can I borrow that? If you tell them no, then they're talking bad about you. Or you think you're better than us, or you think you this, or you think you that. No, I don't. I just, if you don't want something better, I can't do nothing for you. There's nothing, there's no, I, I love you, I care about you, but I can't support bad habits. I can't. It was a struggle to get to where I am now. So, but I, I can't go back. I want to keep going forward. And I want to bring you forward if I can. But if you show me you don't want to go forward, there's nothing I can do for you. And yet there's a random, I mean, clearly your your work ethic and your mentality is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But there's a randomness to it, too. Yeah. I mean, you were faster. You were more athletic. Uh, that That separated you. That, that got you out. That, that got me out. But I was determined. There was a lot of the white man this, the white man that, the white man don't want us to do this, the white man don't want to do that. I never listened to that because that's an excuse. That's a cop-out. We were all faced with adversities. What are you going to do when you're faced with adversity? I was a fighter. Again, I wasn't the tallest. Everybody, my, all my brothers are taller than me. Six foot one, six foot two. They were bigger than me. But again, I was faster. I was more explosive. But I worked at it. And a lot of people don't know this, but I used to jump over cars. Jump off of cars? Over. Over cars. Over cars. 
at 5'8 in high school. My uncle, I'd be sleeping in bed. My uncle would come wake me up. Come on, you come with me. I was like, where well, I'm going? This guy don't believe you can jump over the front end, front end or the back end of his car. But I'm asleep. Get up. So basically, he's just talking to his buddy. And they're bragging about their nephews. And <laughs> I go out there, jump over a car. The guy gave him $40. I didn't know they had a bat. So they bet forty dollars. Then I you could, go back to bed. I, no, I was like, give, give me some. He would. He give me five dollars. <laughs> so I go back in and go to bed. So, but I mean, it was. But I worked at it, and I knew what I wanted. I mean, now I'm not no saint, but I got in trouble. <clears throat> I said this at the funeral. You all think I'm a, a saint, or I don't? I never did anything. I did dirt. I just never did dirt around the house, and I never got caught. I said I was fast for a reason. If somebody was going to chase me, they weren't going to catch me. I said, my brothers just did their dirt around the house where everybody saw it, and they got in trouble. Or they did it outside. They weren't fast enough to get away. You know, I didn't, I didn't sell drugs. I never smoked. I never drank. I would fight. I stole a couple things, you know, go to stores, steal some candy, run out. Other than that, that's, that's it. I never wanted to murder anybody. never wanted to do anything harm to anybody unless they wanted to do harm to me or my family. And, you know, again, I got shot protecting my little brother. Yeah, so so the, the summer before you're to go to Nebraska, mm-hmm. 1990, uh, you, you've already signed to come signed up Signed to come here. And you're out. Basically, your brother's in a fight, right? No. Um, a lot of people don't know this. Before I leave Dodge City, I got, I'm the oldest of three, four boys. The third brother... He does, he does 18 months in juvenile for armed robbery, 14 years old. He gets out. My family comes to my graduation at Dodge City. Well, you graduate one weekend, your finals are the next weekend, or the next following week, then you leave. So my mom said, we're going to leave him with you this week to keep him out of trouble. He fresh out of juvenile for armed robbery. I said, okay, let's try to help him along. He's tall, skinny. He's taller than me. He's skinny. He's probably 6'1". 180 at the time. He was a basketball player. but uh, So that whole week go by, he's hanging out with me in the dorm, chilling. The last night there, my two roommates were cowboys. Hunters, cowboys, farmers. White guys. Yeah. They wanted to go to a party. I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay and spend the last night with my girlfriend. So they said, can we take your little brother? I said, Make sure you watch him. You know, <laughs> you know how he is. They're like, we got him. I said, okay. So they go to the party. I'm hanging out. Next you know, they're banging on the door. Hey, you got to come with us. They try to jump on your brother. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, they try to jump on your brother. I'm like, who? Well, it was two of my teammates. They didn't know who he was. One was an old lineman from Oklahoma, and the other one was the backup quarterback from Virginia, who didn't like me anyway because he thought he was better than me, but he wasn't. So I go back to the party. Um, I told my brother on the car, I said, I'm going after the big one. You got the quarterback. You get the little one. He goes, I got you. That's how I was. I'm going to get the big one. So you're going to fight a teammate. Yeah. Well, a former teammate. Yeah, former they were freshmen. Team. They were red shirts. Okay. So we get there. I go right to the old line. I said, man, what's the deal? He goes, well, when we found out it was your little brother, we tried to squash him, but he kept talking. I said, that don't give you the right to put your hands on him. And as soon as I said that, all I see is barrel of a gun and I was like whoa so who's holding it my brother your brother's holding the gun yeah 
I'm like, where you get a gun from? So I turned to my two roommates. Well, when he pointed, everybody ran. Everybody ran. They scattered. So, so I turned to my two roommates. I said, which one of y'all gave him the gun? They didn't want to say nothing. I was like, which one of y'all gave him the gun? They were like, well, he did. But he told us he was just going to scare him. I said, listen, man. He just did 18 months in juvenile for armed robbery. He's going to use it. He's not afraid to use it. Right? So we leave. We go pack our car and we drive to St. Louis. We're driving from Dodge City, Kansas to St. Louis. We drive halfway. We pull over in Kansas City, sleeping on the hotel parking lot for like three hours to rest. Then we drove the rest of the way. I get to St. Louis, pull up. My little brother's sitting on the porch. He's got a busted lip and a black eye. I'm like, what happened to you? This is the baby. He's 13 at the time. He said, guy down the street beat me up. I said, who? He said, the one that played football with you. I said, a guy my age beat you up? He said, yeah. I said, why? He said, because I wouldn't let him use my basketball. I said, okay. So he said, there go his cousin right there. So my brother jumps off the porch and beat up his cousin. That's how you did it. If somebody do something to you, you do something to them or somebody that's next to them. So we go in the house, and we're talking. My uncle said, he, we're, we're talking about Nebraska. He said, are you ready? I said, I was born ready. I'm, I'm ready for the challenge. I said, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. I said, it's probably going to be guys that are just as fast as I am, just as quick as I am, and I'm sure it's going to be bigger than me. Yeah, I said, but I'm ready for it. He goes, good. And all of a sudden, my grandma goes, hey, y'all, there's a lot of noise outside. Go see what that is. So my uncle goes, looks out the window. In our house, it was a skinny, narrow house. You can see straight through from room to room. And all of a sudden, we're sitting in the kitchen. My uncle's in the living room. He calls me and my brothers. He said, hey, y'all come out here and handle this. Well, the guy went and got his family. So we walk out. There's 15 people out there. So it's my uncle, me, and my three brothers and 15 of his people. Well, the guy who played Little League football with me that beat up my little brother is one of the ones. So I went straight to him. I said, why would you put your hands on my brother? He's 13 years old. Well, he's smart. He got lippy with me, this and that, this and that. I said, I don't give you no right. As soon as I said that, my brother punched him. So it was a free-for-all. It was a free-for-all. And I just happened to see his sister pull out a gun. His sister? Yeah. She ran in the house because they live right down the street from us. She ran in the house and, and handed him a gun. And I told my brother to run. You go that way, and I went the other way. He starts shooting. I'm running zigzag and bullets hitting the concrete. And I get down by where we live, and my arm starts burning. And I look down, blood's shooting out of my arm. I'm like, holy crap. So, I mean, the bullet just burns like no other. So I was like. So the first time you've been shot? First time. I said, I said, he got me. They was like, where? I said, in my arm. So they called the ambulance. Ambulance came to the hospital. Get to the hospital. They said, well, it's laying next to your bone. If we take it out, it would damage all your muscle tissue. So we decided to leave it in. My mom said, we're getting you out of here before your brothers get you in trouble. So two days later, they drove me to Nebraska. Get to Nebraska. Coach Osborne and Coach Brown met me at the apartment I was going to be staying in for the summer. And my mom said, tell him. I was like, he doesn't need to know. She was like, no, tell him. I wasn't going to tell him. So I said, I look Coach Osborne in his face. I said, Coach, I got shot yesterday. He said, with a needle. <laughs> <laughs> so I raised up my arm and my sleeve, and he saw the patch. I said, no, nah, with a gun. So he looks at my mom. He looks at Coach Brown. He looks at me. He goes, do you mind if we keep him here? And 
get him graduated to get you guys out of that neighborhood. My mom said, keep his, you know what, right here with you, because his brother's going to get him in trouble. Right then and there, I knew I had made the right decision to come to Nebraska because I knew that Coach Osborne <clears throat> cared about me as a person, not only just as a football player. Was there retribution for your brothers back home? No, because when I got out of the hospital, I go back to the house, and I, my grandmother said, Kenny, you need to find everybody. I said, why? She said, because they're, they're, they're tripping. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, they're losing their mind. So, again, the guy stayed. He lived six houses from us. Yeah, that's the problem. So I walked down there, and there's a U-Haul in front of his house, in front of their apartment that they lived in. So I looked through the, the apartment complexes. I see, like, 20, 25 people standing up on our boys' club grass. So I walk over there. It's my brother's my uncle, and guys I haven't seen since middle school. Same middle school I told you the guys were older than me. I hadn't seen them since middle school. So I look down on the ground. There's every gun imaginable laying on the ground. I'm like, what are y'all doing? Oh, we're going to get him. We're going to get him. You saw the U-Haul? I was like, yeah. Well, my brother kicked their door in looking for the guy. And he wasn't there. He wasn't there. So they said, well, either y'all tell us where he is. Y'all got to move. Somebody got to pay for that. That's why the U-Haul was sitting out there. They had already ordered the U-Haul to move because he threatened to hurt them because they shot me. And I was like, yeah, it's time to go. So that's when my mom said, we're getting you out of here. What was it like two summers ago watching your hometown blow up on the national media the way that it did? I'm talking about Ferguson. Yes. You know? I mean, that, that had to be... It was tough. Heart-wrenching for it, you. It was tough to watch. Um, again... I've ex- experienced it firsthand. I've been pulled over for no reason, gun to my head, made late on the ground. That was at 15 years old. And then again, um, you know, a guy, they pull me over. Why are you driving this nice of a car? You know, can we search a car? Yeah, I don't smoke. I don't do anything. I work every day. I work hard to, to, to be able to drive a car like this. Um, but to watch it, that I mean, it, it, it was it was gut wrenching. I hate that it came to that. Um, but there's two sides of both stories. I mean, I don't know the story, but just the way it happened. You had to know those people, though. I mean, you my daughter lives in that area. My mom lives in that area, so I was constantly on the phone checking on them. Um, I go home. I have to drive by where the police have their things set up to get to my mom's house. And you see all the tankers, you see all the, the different machinery that they, that they have for nightfall. And, and I'm like, geez. Um, I wish they could have just expressed it in a different way. You know, because now where, where you got to go to buy your, your groceries, where you got to go to. You to wish get, who would have expressed it in a different way? Everyone. Everyone that has something to do with it, which they would have just dealt with it in a different manner. Um, again, because I've been in that in in that situation, I was called the N word at the age of fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, in high school. You know, when a teacher tells your head coach she's not going to help you with an assignment or help you with extra work because you're a N. That hurts. 
a lot of people don't know that. I mean, I didn't play my junior season because the teacher wouldn't help me with extra work. I didn't ask her for a grade. She said she wasn't going to do it because she didn't want to help me because of the color of my skin. That's why I didn't play my junior season. So that's what, I mean, I've, I've lived it, I've done it. I mean, I've experienced it. But I'm educated to know that there's good people and there's bad people. Associate yourself with good people and then bring people along with you. Back up, Nebraska's recruiting you. Pacific is recruiting you. Yes. John Gruden John is Gruden. an assistant coach at Pacific. My guy. What the hell? It was between Pacific and Nebraska because of the relationship I built with Coach Gruden. And the relationship <laughs> I built How with did John Gruden find you at Dodge City Community College? I do not know. I, I don't know. Did he want you to play quarterback? They wanted me as an athlete. As an athlete. So, in other words, we'll figure it out They'll later. figure it out. They had a really good receiver that was going to be graduating. Um, University of Houston. They had the run and shoot. Manny, Manny Hazard was a receiver there with Andre Ware as a quarterback. They wanted me to replace Manny Hazard. So, but just my visit out there at Pacific, it was a long way away. You know, there was a, a lot of money could have been involved, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um but the relationship I had with Gruden, I remember Gruden coming to Dodge City and our athletic director's office overlooked the gym. He said, hey, is it true what they say about you? I was like, what? That you can dunk a basketball? I said, yeah. He said, go down there and do that for me. Because you're 5'8 and a half. 5'8 on a good day. And uh, I throw the ball up, dunk, and he goes, yep, you're my guy. You're my guy. What was he like at that point? He was a young guy. He was a young guy. He was a young <clears throat> young gun. He was very, very into it. He he, he, he could he could talk with the best of them. And uh he and then you go to Coach Brown recruiting me from Nebraska. So it's two different aspects. But it came down to I go to my official visit there, I go to my official official visit here to Nebraska. Never heard from Walt Harris, who's the head coach. Never heard from Coach Osborne, who's the head coach. I'm like, hold on, something ain't right. You were telling me all this on my official visit, but I haven't heard from the head coach. Same deal with Nebraska. So I told them both. My mama called me. She goes, why are you not accepting calls from them anymore? I said, well, I haven't heard from the head man. I want to hear from the head man. I told John Gruden, I said, listen, if you get Walt Harris to come see me, Dodge City, and go sit in my neighborhood in St. Louis, you you have a really good chance for me to come there. Why did you want him to do that? So they can see my life outside of football. See where I grew up. See where I'm coming from. See the family structure I had with the 26 people in one house. See how many people that were supporting me that had my back. I wanted them to meet them. Because they, back then, your parents couldn't fly. We couldn't afford it for my parents to fly out there with me. They didn't right. come to Nebraska, so... That was very important to me, uh, for my mom to meet him, my grandmother to meet him. And then uh, told Coach Brown the same thing. I haven't heard from Coach Osborne. I need for him to come visit me, Dodge City, then go sit in my neighborhood in St. Louis, in my house. Coach Osborne showed up to Dodge City. We went to the cafeteria. He signed about 200 autographs. We talked. I said, Coach, you don't have to do that. He goes, no, there's no problem. The line was down the stairs outside the, the building. For him to sign autographs. <laughs> he's signing, we're talking, he's signing, we're talking. He um he leaves, he goes to uh St. Louis, he calls me when he, he says, I'm sitting in your, your living room. What's what's your decision? 
I said, Coach, I'm going to the University of Nebraska. That's where I'm going. That's See, what, what, what a lot of people don't know about Tom Osborne is how competitive he is he's, and how committed he, you know, I mean, he's... He, 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 very, very. And... On the recruiting trail, he was... He was, he was, he was a pit bull. Yeah. Very, very soft-spoken in person, but on the recruiting trail, he was a pit bull. And again, I was an Oklahoma fan. Where was OU in this? They were on probation. Oh. And they had switched coaches. They was trying to go from the option offense to a spread offense. So they had Kale Gundy as their golden child. And one of my best friends from St. Louis, who's one of the only two to make it out from our middle school, he was at Coffeeville signed with Oklahoma. And he tried to tell them to sign me. And they wouldn't they didn't they didn't do it. So so I played against him. He was a DB at Oklahoma, I was a DB here. You were pretty typical back then where Nebraska would recruit basically the best athletes they could find, and then they'd put, put some of them at quarterback, some of them at running back, and move a lot of them to defensive back. Well, remember, Nebraska had wingbacks back then. Yeah, well, wingbacks. I was I'm a wingback, yeah. slot back, wingback, and then they moved me to defensive back. Yeah, so. What was the – you've got a good story that you've told about that. 1990 season uh, where you were playing oh, wingback and you were scouting Darian Hagan. Yeah. Well, they approached me because I was an option quarterback. We were playing Colorado, and they said, well, we're going to need you to play Darian Hagan this week. So that's fine. Again, I missed playing quarterback. I loved having the ball in my hand. So we, we go out the first week and the first day, and the first four plays were touchdown. They didn't touch me. So Coach McBride got so mad. Oh my God! I mean, when I the words he used, <laughs> so he yells down to Coach Osborne, say, "Hey Tom, you looking for a quarterback next year? He's down here. We he's down here kicking our. You know what? We haven't touched a little. You know what? So he comes back down. He yells more at the defense. Uh, sends it back out. So we run the next play." Kenny Walker, he hit me so hard. And I was like, oh, my goodness, right? I'm only 5'8", 172, 73 back then. And I'm looking up at him because he knocked the ever-living you-know-what out of me. And I'm looking up at him, and I'm like, so coach pisses you off, and you hit me like that. And he yanks me up by my shoulder pad and jersey. Slaps me on my helmet and says, get the you-know-what back in the huddle. You know, you can understand some of the words he would say. He said, get your you-know-what back in the huddle. Because Kenny, Kenny Walker's hearing impaired. He was deaf. So he understands what you're, you're saying, saying to him. Yes. And you can kind of understand what he's saying. So right then and there, I say, it's on. We're going to have some fun. Because the competitive in, competitor in me comes out now. I know I got the black shirt defense pissed off. And the only way they're going to get better if I if I make them get better or if I help them to get better. Give them a good look. So it was a great, great week. And I I see Darren Hagan all the time. I tell him that story. And you know what he tells me? You can't beat me. <laughs> but know, no, that was that was a fun week. So it had to be hard for you to move to defense. No. It wasn't, it wasn't. Um it goes back to early on, the adversity I faced prepared me for that. Cause I was a I wanted to do whatever I had to do. For a team to make a team better, whatever wherever they wanted me to play, I would play it. I knew my athletic ability at some point would kick in. You know, all I had to do was learn it. 
hadn't played it since high school. In high school, I was just out there playing football. You know, you, yeah, you don't, man, you don't know schemes. You just playing football. So I had to learn how to become a defensive back. Luckily, I had two seniors in front of me, Curtis Cotton and Tyrone Leggett. So while they were out there, compared I, to those guys, you were like unathletic. Very. <laughs> Curtis Cotton jumped a forty-two inch vertical and ran a four-three electronic. I ran a four-four electronic, but he was and he was a physical specimen. Tyrone Leggett was probably my size, but he was fast and he had been playing a position longer than I had. So I was a sponge. I watched their every move on the field, and I tried not not to make the mistakes they made. So I benefited from watching those two as seniors that spring. And then um, fall camp fall camp comes around, and you know they say I'm gonna be the backup to one of those two. I'm like, okay, I've earned it. I, I've I've arrived. And the reason why I say I've arrived because they said a backup. I didn't want to be the starter. I just wanted to play my role, learn more, and as the time went on, develop and become a good player. First game, I got an interception. Second game, I got an interception. Third game, I got an interception. I'm like, I can do this. That's what now the confidence and everything is, is in there now. I can do this. Just continue to grow and continue to learn. Man, then that KU game comes around, two interceptions. And it's so, so, you, so, yeah, Kansas is – November, uh, you've already got like six or I got four. Four, okay. Drop one. <laughs> so it would, be, it would be five, but drop one. So Kansas rolls around, and a little birdie whispers in my ear. You know, as a six-year-old kid, all you dream about is trying to make it out, play professional football. That was instilled in me by my uncle. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Just continue on. Do the right things. You're going to make it. Just So professional football. A little birdie whispered in my ear, if you keep doing what you're doing, you can come out after this year. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, okay. But I never let that go to my head. I never, you know, but I said, I'm just going to ball out. I'm just going to keep continue to do what I do. Go out there and I get two interceptions against KU. Second one, I'm returning it, playing on that turf, and Negan gives out. And Torn ACL. I've been shot, Right. Me being shot does not compare to the pain I felt on my knee. Really? Yes. I had never been injured before. Never had a serious injury before. So I'm laying on the ground, and Ernie Beeler was the safety. And he goes, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. He's not realizing what, what happened. He's like, get up. I said, I can't. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I can't. And he looks in my eye. He know because Ernie, Ernie Beeler was one of the most competitive guys on the team. He was, he was a safety. And uh, he looked in my eye. He knew how competitive I was. And he saw in my eye what I meant, and he just walked away. He started crying. Really? Yeah. Because he knew. I said, I can't move. I can't. Well, and back then, the fear is that's the end of a that's career. That's the end of the career. So I get up. I walk off. Um, I, tr- I run down the sideline. I run back. They said, make a cut. And I try to make a cut, and, I, and it just gave out. And right then and there, I was like, yeah, that's it. So you you earn all Big Eight cornerback honors that mm-hmm. year, nineteen ninety one, mm-hmm. even though you didn't finish out the year. Yeah. Uh, you missed the Oklahoma game, which had to hurt. Missed the, missed the uh, Orange Bowl game against Miami. That hurt. Standing on the sideline watching that hurt. It hurt so bad. But you come back and you know you're ready for ninety two. Uh, 
let me let me back you up on that one. Yeah. Um, Doke Ostergaard used to be the, the trainer. He said Coach Osborne got on the bus after that game. I didn't know this. Doke t- told me this. He got on the bus after that game and told him, Doke, you got one job, and that's to get Kenny healthy and ready for his senior year. Coach Osborne told him. After the, after the KU game? After the KU game. Okay. After I had hurt my knee. He said, you got one job, and that's to get Kenny healthy and ready to go for his senior year. So, I mean, I get back, and, you know, we, we're talking to different people, and they're trying to figure out what kind of surgery we're going to have. And I had tendonitis real bad, jumper's knee. They said, with that, we can't take it from your patella tendon because it would just bother you really, really bad later on. So they threw out cadaver. I don't know what the heck a cadaver is. You know, <laughs> I'm like, what? And they was like a ligament from a, you know, whatever. And I was like, how is that going to work? They was like, it's a faster process. You can be back, you know, because it's November. For, in order for you to be back for your senior year, it's the only way. So I called my mom. I was like, they trying to put a ligament from a dead person in me. And she goes off. She goes in this big rant. She wants to talk to him. So she talked to him. We decided on it. And Dr. Dugall, Dr. Claire, they did the surgery. And I was back playing basketball in three months. Three months. Yes. I had surgery in November. December, January, February. I was playing basketball. And then I went summer spring ball with an ACL brace home. Didn't feel comfortable with it, but. I was able to get back out there. The reason why I went to basketball, because growing up, basketball was my second best love. But I knew all the constant cutting. Yeah. I needed to get my um, confidence back in my knee. Because uh, it was a struggle now. I quit. A lot of people don't know that, but I quit. I I let the trainer have it one day and, and uh, walked home out of depression because I was so mad. It was hurting so bad, the, the rehab. I said, I'm, I quit. I'm going home. So I, I cussed him out, walked home, called my grandmother. I said, I said, I can't do this. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I can't do it. She goes, you can't do it. I said, it hurts. She goes, well, one thing you ain't going to do, you ain't coming back here without that piece of paper. She said, so you better figure something out because you ain't coming back out. You're not coming back here without that piece of paper. Came back the next day, apologized to Doe. Um, I felt bad because I was, but apologized to him. And then um, I refocused my energy from NFL football to academics. Because huh. I wanted that piece of paper. Again, I, nobody in my family had a college degree. No one of the 26 people had a college degree. A lot of them were high school, elementary, junior high, dropouts. So I was determined to get that degree to make my grandmother proud. So my focus became on academics. So it was, it was if football happened, it happened. Again, what are you going to do when you face with adversity? I, I pushed forward. You arrive in 90. You leave in 92. Mm-hmm. During those two years, Nebraska had, had kind of gone from bottom out after that Colorado game in 90 mm-hmm. to by the time Colorado comes back to Memorial Stadium in 92, it's starting to turn in the right direction. Yep. What did I asked Trev Alberts a similar question when I had him on this podcast. What did you see in those two years that was different? 
what I saw was guys stop being individuals, playing only for one thing, and that was to go to the NFL, to becoming more of a team and landing on the line for each other. Uh, the focus became that and not just about yourself as an individual. Um, and there, that, that, that's when that prayer became, um, Husker prayer came, and and guys believed in it. They didn't. It wasn't just saying it because we were divided. We 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 were we were we say we were, were teammates, but we weren't. I mean, were, we were fighting each other. We were. So in the, in ninety and ninety one, you were divided. Yeah, it wasn't. As a first year guy, all, all I saw was guys playing to make it to the NFL. Huh. You know, now they laid it on the line, but their ultimate goal was just to make it to the NFL. It wasn't. I'm playing for the guy next to me. It was, but it wasn't. It was talked about, but it wasn't really believed in. Ninety one, ninety two, it started getting better, and then that group, that recruiting class in ninety two, and I knew it. I saw it, and I just hoped that. that Coach Osborne could keep it. You're talking about Frazier and Tommy, yeah. Danny, Clint Childs, Brooke Barringer. You know, I knew Brooke from when I was at Dodge City. His high school play, came and played in Dodge City in the basketball game. Oh, really? Yeah, I met him. I knew they were recruiting him, so I met him then. And then uh, there was talent coming in. Huh. We, we would go play basketball, and they were all thinking they were. I'm like, you're still a freshman. I'm a senior. Stay in your lane. <laughs> I mean, we talk about it all the time. They were cocky. They were cocky. They were cocky. And they, they, they should have been because they were really, really good. Corey Dixons, Abdul Muhammad's, Clinton Childs, Dante Jones, Dwayne Harris. I mean, they, there were some monsters now. What was the, what was Frazier like on the practice field? Because you're a senior and he, 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 he's a freshman. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't really talkative then. I mean, okay. He, he was confident. But he really didn't say much. I think he just bought his time. He he just waited his time and he handled it really, really good. Now he got frustrated a little bit. But as a freshman, you don't want to throw him to the wolves right away now. You, you just it's still college football. But I think once he got his feet underneath him, he learned it. He he was ready to roll. And I think they put him in right at the right opportunity. Because we just took off from there. He got hit by by Dion Figures. He got hit so hard. I was like, "Is he gonna get up?" So this is this is the Halloween game mm-hmm. here, Memorial Stadium, fifty-two to seven. Yes. Uh, and you're talking about a hit where Dion Figures smacks him. Smacks him. And I'm saying to myself, "Is he gonna get up or is he gonna lay down?" He jumps up, runs back to the hole. I said, "We got us one." You know, I said, we got a soldier, Tommy. I said, we got us one. That's a true freshman taking that hit by NFL draft chart, draft pick. And he jumps up right away. We got us one. Isn't that interesting how, how little things like that mean so much to teammates? It, it means a lot. I mean, <clears throat> not to throw anybody under the bus, but 90-91, I saw guys get hit and they didn't want to play anymore. You can look in their eyes. That's what that's what an eye check became. I'm doing an eye check. Eye check. 
I'm looking in your eyes if you really want to go out here and do this. You walk down the sideline, you can see who has deer in the headlight eyes or who wants really wants to play. That Miami game, when we were down in Miami, I'm standing on the sideline on crutches. A lot of guys did not want to be there. Yeah. You know, so. I bet you and Perella have some good uh, good storytelling days. Oh, yeah. Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's my dude, man. I tell him all the time, thank you for the interceptions. <laughs> him, Trev, Travis, they made my job easy because I knew they was going to get to the quarterback. Self-made. Perello self-made. Much respect for that guy. He was a walk-on. He turned down a scholarship. He worked his butt off. He developed. He became what Nebraska had been. He became what Nebraska had been, what they're known for. Guys developing, becoming good football players. That's why he has a successful NFL career. In a lot of ways, he's what you're looking for today with your job, right? Yes. Yes. Guys that want to work at it, get better. They don't want it right away. They want to work at it. Because when you get guys that want it, but don't want to work for it, it's not a good mix. How do you identify, okay, I'm going to jump ahead 25 years here, and then I'm going to go back, but but how do you identify, how do you find John Perellas when, you know, you don't have access to guys on a daily basis. No. How do you, how do you see that? Once you get them, or you get them in front of you, you just ask them, or you, or you, or you talk to them on the phone, you get them to call you, hey, do you love football, or are you just playing it just to play it? You like it just because you get a girlfriend here, a girlfriend there, or you can get your name in the if they tell you they love the game, then you do some recon and research. Do they really love the game or are they just doing it just to do it? Or are they saying it's just mouth? Because if guys don't love the game, then you're not gonna get you're not gonna get the right guy. You played four years in the CFL. You were third in the player of the year race in ninety six. Doug Flutie beat you out. Doug Flutie. It's pretty hard for a cornerback to finish third in the player of the year race. Yeah, but when you're returning a lot of punts and a lot of kickoffs, you, <laughs> you have an opportunity. You make a lot of people miss, you have an opportunity. Those were some fun times, man. I mean, again, I got to do something that I've always enjoyed doing. That's play football. Um, when I'm on the football field, when I was on the football field, I would talk a little trash, but I was always smiling. Because, again, I had... Loved it. I had fun doing it. And once the fun stopped, I was going to stop doing it. That was my that was my sanctuary. Football was my sanctuary. A lot of people say, when you when you when you're down or when you're, I go to the football field. That was my sanctuary. It took a lot of my pain away, from my upbringing to my family to whatever. Football was my sanctuary. Hey, in the midst of that. Um July 1992, I think you're back in St. Louis, mm-hmm. right? And uh, there was a car accident. Well, there was, it was, yep, we were driving back. So you, it's you and Lorenzo Brinkley? Lorenzo Brinkley and my little brother. And uh, What happened that night? It's tough to talk about because a lot of people don't know it. They don't know the truth behind it. Um, but there was an accident. In the city? No, we were driving through Kansas City. Kansas City. Kansas City. And we get to Platt County, Platt City, coming up 29. And uh, coming out of construction, this this van cuts me off. So I tried to swerve it to miss it and caught the very back end. We rolled six times. Uh, we all had orange seatbelts. Um, the van ended up on this side in the median. I get out run down to the van, try to make sure everybody's okay. Well, a little girl passed away in, it, in, in the accident. 
So there's an 11 year old girl in the van. In the van with her mom, dad, and brother. She passed away. So I immediately, I immediately, they said she's under the van. So we tried to move the van. It wouldn't move because it was raining. And uh, so, well, to make a long story short, we go to court. Mom testifies that they didn't have the little girl in, in the seatbelt, and Dad can't cut me off. Okay, Dad cut me off. They still found me guilty, guilty of misdemeanor, careless driving, right? So we appealed it. This is my rookie year with the Bears. We appealed it. Well, the mom, again, nobody knows this story. It's all hearsay. Um, the mom sues me for $5.6 million. Well, the rental car company didn't find me a lawyer because they were supposed to be liable for me since I had a rental car and I had insurance through them. So you had, you had rented a car? Mm-hmm. It was a rental car. And so... The mom lawyer reaches reaches out to me <clears throat> and asks me to help her sue the rental car company. So we go back to court. We do the depositions and all that. And then, um, well, she won the lawsuit against the rental car company. She divorced her husband and sued him. Okay, again, he, he was driving, and he was at fault. Well, they still found me guilty. Well, this was in '92. This went on until 1999. Wow. And it went on to 1999. I get pulled over. I'm driving. I'm coaching at Dodge City. I'm driving back to St. Louis for my best friend's wedding. Then I was going to go vacation in Vegas. I get pulled over. They say, you have a warrant. I was like, a warrant? At that time, my little brothers used my name on a consistent basis. <laughs> I have warrants in my name that I knew nothing about. They're like, did you get a ticket in Plaque City? I was like, no. They're like, well... So they, they took me to St. Charles County Jail. They're like, well, we just called Platte City. They're going to let you out. They're going to let you pay a fine, and it's going to be all over with. I was like, okay. So it, it, it rings a bell now. I'm thinking the accident, right? So they come back, and he goes, well, they want to come get you. So I go to Platte County. They drive me from St. Charles County in St. Louis to Platte County. I'm in Platte County Jail for... 36 days. The summer in, in uh, 1999. I find a lawyer in Platte County, one of the best lawyers in the state of Missouri, to deal with something like this. He comes and we sit down. He goes, hey, uh, did you know you have a warrant for your name? I was like, no, I was in and out of court for the other things with the, with the little girl's mom. And uh, never heard anything else about it. I thought it was over with. They said misdemeanor. So I was out. And so he goes, no, they, they're considering you a fugitive. I was like, a fugitive? And he was like, yeah. He said, because your lawyer stopped going to court for you. I was like, okay. So we, we, we got this plan together, and he goes, I see you've been a law-abiding citizen. You've never been in trouble before. You've taught preschool. You taught elementary PE. You're coaching now. He said, you don't know this. He said, but in 1992 the district attorney and your lawyer was in cahoots with the judge. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, they were sending any African-American that came in front of them to jail for anything they did. They were getting a, a godly amount of time for misdemeanors. So that's why you were found guilty. I was like, really? He was like, yeah. He said, so let me work on this. So two weeks later, we go to court. 
I go in front of the same judge. He said, 1992, uh, state of Missouri, this, this, this versus Kendrick, Kendrick Wilhite. Um, he goes, but, you know, we were wrong. I'm the first to admit we were wrong. We should not have found you guilty. He goes, um, I see you've been a law-abiding citizen. You've never been in trouble before. You've tried to live a, a really good life. You've helped people. And uh, you know, so what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read whatever he said from what I did back in 1992. He said, I'm very sorry. He said, you're free to go. And I walked out of there bawling because it brought back old memories. I mean, I know it wasn't my fault, but it's, I still look at it as my fault because the little girl passed away. So my life has been lived from that point on to help people, whether it's adults, kids, I've been over backwards for people. I do what I can to help people be successful. That's why I love doing what I do, working with kids, try to educate them on the game of life. You know, because, again, this game, this life is not promised to you. Tomorrow is not promised to you. So I live my life every day. I walk in this building every day um, with, the, with the notion I'm going to help somebody be successful because I carry that with me. Kenny, you... you um you're on the scene that night, and at what point do you realize what had happened? I mean, it's being in a car accident is one thing. Being in a car accident where a little girl died. I didn't know she passed away until the next day. Oh, really? Yeah. We go to the hospital. They draw blood from me. I say, I don't drink. I don't smoke. Here's what happened. I was cut off. You know, I tried to avoid them. I was cut off. But, again, they weren't trying to listen to me. African American, 1982, Pat County, Missouri. They weren't trying to listen to me, so I could do all the blood tests. I come back to Lincoln. I didn't hear anything else about that until May of 1993. A year later. A year later, when I had a, got a court date. May of 1993. I I didn't hear anything else about it until then. And that's when we went to court. But that but that incident stuck with you for a long time right? still sticks with me I have to drive through that to get home to St. Louis all the time and as I'm coming by that I have this rose in my car I kiss it every time turn the music down complete silence the whole time I'm driving past that exit no matter what I'm doing turn the music down kiss that rose and look up look, look up above Did it last night driving back to St. Louis. Your entrance into coaching was Tony Samuel, right? T. Sams. <clears throat> hurt my other knee in Canada. Went rehab the whole summer. Uh, coach I played for in Sacramento called me, said, are you done? I go, I'll give it another shot. So he signs me to a contract with Edmonton. I report, go up for a pass. My knee gives out. I said, I'm done. I want to be able to walk. I've had a great run at this game. It's been fun. I drive back to St. Louis. Um, Tony calls me. He goes, hey, man, sorry about that uh, that, that knee. I was like, yeah. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm back home in St. Louis. He goes, what do you want to do? I said, coach, you know what? I haven't even thought about it. I really haven't. He goes, well, you want to get into coaching? I was like, yeah. And he said, um, well, I don't have a 
position for you now. He said, but if you come down here, you can volunteer the first year, learn the ropes, and then you can be my GA the next year. But we'll find you a job. So I thought about it for a day or two, and then some things happened between my my family and I. And uh, I said, you know what? I need to get out of St. Louis. I need to go. You got a falling out or what? Yeah, yeah. So I said, I need to get out of St. Louis. So I, 2 o'clock in the morning, packed my truck and drove to Las Cruces, New Mexico from St. Louis, Missouri. And mm, probably the best decision I ever made in my life. Why? Just to get out of St. Louis. <clears throat> the negativity, the... So you come back at age 25, 26, 20, something like that. I was 27. 27. 28. I was 28. And you realize, I can't be here? Yeah. Yep. Because it just hadn't changed, huh? Nothing changed. Everybody's still living off my grandmother and granddad. I mean... I can't live here. I can't, I can't do this. I can't. I can't. Couldn't. Emotionally, physically, I just couldn't. Coming off dealing with the with the accident stuff, you're dealing with brothers using your name. You have warrants in your name. I'm not talking like tickets. I'm talking about armed criminal action. I'm talking about assault with a deadly weapon. I'm talking about those kind of warrants. You have to go down in the courtroom in front of a judge, sign your name, and your signatures will match. That's the only way you're beating the case. You know, so I'm saying I got to go. What's What's fascinating about that, you had made that exact journey 10 years earlier. Exactly. Almost the exact, exact same, same place. I mean, yeah. it's, you, you could have almost driven by Dodge City, Kansas on the way to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Yep. Yep. So I, I said I got to go. I drove. Again, my, my grandmother was my heart. She was my inspiration. She didn't know. I didn't call her for two weeks. She didn't know that you had left. No, because I lived with her. We we I live. I would go back in the off season and stay with her just to make sure she was good. Um. So I left. I was gone two weeks. I finally picked up the phone and called her. She had been working. You know, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't want a cell phone. She she said, "Where are you at?" I said, "I'm in I'm in New Mexico." She goes. New Mexico? What the heck are you doing in New Mexico? I said, I had, I had to leave. She said, why? I said, I just had to leave. She said, what are you doing out there? I said, I'm, I'm with a guy that coached when I played in Nebraska. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into coaching. I'm going to teach the elementary PE, and I'm going to get into coaching. She goes, how long are you going to be down there? I said, I'm going to be down here a while, as long as I'm welcome here. So you taught elementary PE? Did you have a teaching job? Yeah. I taught elementary PE. So you actually you actually worked. At I a worked school. at a school during the day, and then went to the office football office. <laughs> and a lot of people laugh at me, but that's where I learned how to line dance in two step. Because that was a you had to teach line dancing in two step in gym class. Now I never did that in my gym class in the inner city, but that's what they did in New Mexico. So. My Maria. Did you have a bolo tie? No, I did not. <laughs> Go ahead, so my Maria. My Maria, Brooks and Dunn, was what I learned how to line dance in two steps off of. And you had to teach the kids. Oh, man. I'm picturing. Yes. I'm picturing yes. elementary kids in Las Cruces learning line dancing two, from, a, from an African American guy from St. Louis. Right. You never know what, where, your, where, where your path going to take you. And again, that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. 
by leaving St. Louis and going down there. You really bounced around for about 15 years. I mean, you went to New Mexico State, then you, then you coached at Dodge City, Emporia State, Kentucky State, Southeast Missouri, back with Tony. Mm-hmm. What was going on? Like, did you think it was going to... Were you, were you building towards something? Did you think, uh, this is what I want to do the rest of my life? Were you still trying to figure it out? What, no. what was your mindset? My dedication to football, I knew that's what I wanted to do. My competitiveness for football, I knew I wanted to coach. Um, but I also wanted to coach at the highest level. So that was my ultimate goal. In between Emporia State and Kentucky State, I took a year and a half off. I taught preschool. Really? Yeah. My grandmother passed away in 03, 2003. And that broke me to the point where that's when I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Because without her, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't. So you're 33 years old, and your your inspiration has, has passed away. And What do I do with the rest of my life? So I walked in there and I said, I don't, I don't, I can't coach. I can't give you everything I have. Can't. Walked away, went, moved to Kansas City. I was not going back to St. Louis. Moved to Kansas City, taught preschool for a year and a half. Tony called and said, hey, you want to get back in the coach? And I said, yeah. But that lady, I wear her on my arm every day. I rub it every day. My rock. You still have a hard time talking about it. Yep. So a lot of people don't know what that lady did for a lot of people. She didn't have anything. She would take the kids in the community and feed them. And we didn't have food for us, but she would feed them too. She didn't work. She had 11 kids. My granddad worked. His little piece of job, his little side jobs. Then when he passed away, she lived off of his Social Security. So I always wanted her to not want for anything. And that was my inspiration. And then when she left, man, still hurts. And I go by and see her every time I'm in St. Louis. Cemetery. Really? Where's she buried? In uh, the same cemetery with my granddad because he was in the military. Previous barracks, Jefferson Barracks Cemetery. It's in South County by my high school. So I go out there and see her all the time. What do you do when you're there? Take a knee. Tell her we miss her. Family's not the same without her. Everybody's going their separate ways or just. Just tell her to keep me, keep me moving forward, keep me strong. Kiss it, say, because they're buried together, so her name's on one side, my granddad's name on the other side. I just get up and leave. I play Boys to Men, song Mama, on the way there and leaving. Really? Mm hmm. And then when I get in the car to go to St. Louis or make long trips, that's the first song I play every time I get in the car to go on long trips. Because I know she's my guardian angel. Yep. 
brown. What do you think? She passed away in 2003. Mm. What do you think she would think of Kenny Wilhite in 2017? She'd be proud. Just the fact that knowing that I'm back here working, I got the opportunity to come back. Because we talked about it. We talked about it a lot. Because I always said it. You know, Lincoln, Nebraska would be a place I would want to live. Because coming from St. Louis, it's a lot quieter, it's a lot slower. You know, it's, sometimes it's too quiet. You know what I mean? But she, she would be very, very proud. She'd be happy. I bet you thought about her when you got that phone call yes, to come I back. Did. Yes, I did. I drove from Cape Dorado through St. Louis to here, and I stopped at the cemetery and said, I, I'm going back. Yep. So they want me back. So this place, again, I'm blessed. I talked to my high school football coach yesterday. He go, I said, Coach, I'm blessed. I'm back at a place doing something I love to do. Um, this place saved my life. It gave me an opportunity. I owe this place everything. So I'm going to give this place my everything. You know, Kenny, I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to give you an ego boost, but there are hundreds of former Nebraska players from the Osborne era that would, <clears throat> that would die for the opportunity to wear wear that in on a daily basis and, you know, work in the office and, and try to get them back to where they were. Uh, I would imagine you hear, I would imagine you hear that from a lot of I do. former players. Don't I you? do. I do. Um, in some ways you represent them. Yes. Yes. You and, you and John Perella. Me and JP. Um, it's a, it's, a lot of people don't realize it. I mean, it's it's a brotherhood. It's a bond that you share, not only with the guys you play with here, but the guys that came before you, the guys that are here now, and the guys that are going to come after you in the future. The administration, the, um, the faculty, to the janitors, to, to the groundskeepers, we we rep, I represent them, we represent them, and it's 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 just an extended family of this of this this stadium. You know, if you look east, you look north, you look south. That's who you represent. You're not only representing this university, but everybody that's associated with this university, the state of Nebraska. So you want to do things to get it back to where you're relevant again. How do you do it? I know it's a very complicated solution. It's not easy. It's a it's a grind. It's a constant grind. Um. In a lot of ways, I mean, so many of the advantages that you guys had 25 years ago are not there anymore. No. You're not on TV as much. You, um, um, you don't have the strength and conditioning no. advantage. You don't have the financial advantage. No. I mean, I don't think that financial is... Is what what it, what, it, what it is. I think it's people have caught up. Um, when you have a a down, when you're in nothing against Nebraska but Lincoln, Nebraska, 
you take that television, the kids that you're recruiting don't know Nebraska. Back then, I knew Nebraska because Oklahoma and Nebraska was on every week. They're, or a Thanksgiving Day game. You, they were on TV. We're not on TV as much. so, And then you haven't won the big one in so long. It's been 20 years. So the kids you're bringing don't know Nebraska. You have to teach them teach them the Nebraska way um, and is that enough to, to sell them to come to Nebraska it is but it isn't because Alabama's winning Clemson's winning um, heck Oregon, Oregon, Baylor I mean schools that were terrible the, in 1992 and, but the thing with that is the flash the uniforms, the different helmets you know that's what kids see you know, and you're, I'm an inner city kid from St. Louis, and that's all I know. But you see Oregon on TV and all that flashy stuff. You're gonna, you're gonna like it. You're gonna like it. Um, you go home and I, and I talk to one of my good friends, and then he brings Nelly over, and Nelly has a son. Now wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Time out. You're hanging out with your friend and Nelly comes over? That's, yeah. Okay. So, I was just making sure I got that right. Yeah. And Nelly's talking about his son. He asked his son where he want to go college football. He's talking about Oregon. What do you know about Oregon? Oh, I just saw the uniforms, the helmets, and this and that and this and that. You don't even know about Oregon, but all you saw was the helmets and the uniforms. Now you want to go to Oregon. So Nelly goes, yeah, I, I shut that off real quick. You know, and then Nelly's manager comes to my brother's funeral, and we're talking. He has a son. He asks his son, "What does he want to go play football?" I want to go to Baylor. Did you see the uniforms they had on? I'm like, he goes, he don't even know where Baylor is. You tell him look at the map. Where's Where's Texas? He don't know where Texas is, but he wants to go to Baylor because that's what they see on TV. So you're fighting that. Again, we we I wanted to get back to first people know what Nebraska you they know Nebraska but they don't know Nebraska you know what I mean so that's my that's my constant grind every day to make Nebraska relevant. Is it easier locally? I mean, you're you're in charge of a lot of the local stuff. Mm-hmm. Has that changed too? It has. It has in the fallout is because in the past I wasn't here, but from what I've heard, Nebraska really didn't recruit locally. They really didn't do what they supposed to do at home. There was a lot of walk on recruiting. Yeah, but you know, a lot of walk on hoping. Hoping is that a better word? Hoping. Um, there's a developmental process in this. You're not going to get the finished product. You're not. You want to get kids in the program where they, you can get them going through the program, develop them, get them ready by the time they're redshirt sophomores. John Perella? There you go. I was going to say that, but you said it. He worked himself to be that, and that's what you want. That's what you, you want to take some local kids. You want to give them scholarships and develop them, and then go get the rest from different places where you need to go get them from. 
you have to develop kids in the program and get to the point where you now, okay, now we got this thing rolling. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. This is the last in the first season of episodes. You can access all 13 shows at omaha.com slash podcasts or iTunes or your other favorite podcast app. We'll be back later this summer with a new batch of episodes, but if you have suggestions or ideas or criticisms, please email them to dirk.chatelaine at owh.com. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music, and thanks to all of you for listening.